Hello, my name is David Castleman. I'm the founder and CEO of Ecoflix, the world's first not-for-profit streaming video service, where 100% of our subscription fees go directly to fund animal welfare NGOs around the world. Welcome to the Ecoflix podcast, where I have the opportunity to talk with some of the most inspiring people in the world. Every one of them share amazing insights into how we can all make a difference in the fight to save animals and our planet. I think they're amazing and fascinating. I hope you do too. In this episode, I have the amazing privilege of speaking with the remarkable Gunter Pauly. He is an unparalleled entrepreneur, naturalist, scientist, economist, and author, and perhaps best known for so many things, starting with his unbelievable series of children's books used to teach around the world, which have been followed by his current remarkable book, The Blue Economy, which teaches us how we can shift society from scarcity to abundance with what is locally available. But that just scratches the surface of his remarkable insights and accomplishments, as you will learn from our exciting discussion. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. I'm so excited to introduce our Ecoflix audience to someone who's not only unique, but who challenges conventional wisdom and uses critical thinking at every turn. Gunter, I'm so, so glad and grateful that you could join us. Good to see you again. Good to see you, David. I mean, thanks for inviting me. Well, it's my pleasure. And I, I think I have to start with a little of your background because people just probably couldn't possibly have an understanding of how unique and remarkable an individual you are. Uh, now, you were born in Belgium, but you've lived on four continents. You're fluent in seven languages, and that's really just the starting point. That's your platform to communicate. Um, you may be best known for a lot of unbelievable accomplishments that begin with fantastic children's books. And they're now, as I understand it, a key part of the Chinese school system. This does not compute. So can you start, we're gonna start there, but I wanna get into your, energy, and I don't mean just your personal energy, I mean your excitement about energy and manufacturing and farming and groundbreaking innovations, again, all characterized by out-of-the-box critical thinking at every level that is so desperately needed. So um, I guess your, your life experiences are so deep, we have to start with the children's books. Can you tell us a little bit about what they are how unique they are and how that is now contributing, I think, to humanity. You know, David, uh, first of all, uh, I mean, thanks for taking that as the first subject uh, to discuss. Um, and, and, you know, I'm actually dreaming of someday having Ecoflix uh, uh, bringing all 365 fables uh, to your audience. I love um, it. Uh, we need to talk about that, you know, because I have great difficulty just talking about things. I need to do things, um, you know, and, and, and if there's one uh, chief characteristic of those fables is that I work with these incredible discoveries of nature, these incredible surprises of what we find in nature. I bring it to the kids, not so that they are surprised, but that they're going to do something with it. You know, when, when a child hears that this whale is pumping a thousand liters of blood, I mean, this is a thousand liters of blood with every heartbeat, only using six volt direct current. Immediately, every child is thinking about, why do I need batteries? I mean, this whale has no batteries. How come I need to buy batteries, recharge batteries, have recycled batteries? And the whale does it without batteries. How come? And, and of course, once the child gets into it, it figures it out that it does it because of its food. Oh, so I've got to eat healthy in order to be able to pump my blood through my heart and my veins and my arteries. And immediately the child is going to check, what am I eating? What, what will make my heart beat better? And so this 
immediate action reaction inspiration doing entrepreneurship i mean that's in the end what i want to see kids take up entrepreneurship for the common good so what is the fable the fable is basically uh, a short story of three minutes uh, a dialogue uh, uh, between animals that's why we call it the fable but also between mushrooms and bacteria and and, and a tiger and, and a spider with uh, an ant but they're busy discussing what they're discovering that is so amazing in this world and i do that with a very specific focus on emotions <clears throat> the science is important but that's the obvious but the emotions you know how do you deal with surprises you don't like i mean how do you deal with fear when you're the mouse and you get a talk to the owl i mean how do you deal with fear so i want the emotions to really shine because emotional intelligence is so key. But then when children figure things out, like, you know, oh, why does the zebra have black and white stripes? And, and one of the great results of the black and white stripes is that no malaria mosquito can land on the skin of a zebra. Wow, I tell you, kids will immediately be painting themselves black and white, not because they want to be cool, because they want to be safe. And so this, this impression of what can we use black and white for, don't ask the kids to explain the difference between high pressure and low pressure, the black repelling, uh, you know, the black absorbing heat, the white repelling the heat. Don't ask them that, just do the arts. And this is what is the third element of the fables, intelligence of the arts. I mean, kids can express so many things with a good drawing. And, and hey, uh, every parent sees a Picasso in every painting of their daughter or their son. And I think it's very important that these kids have the chance to express themselves. But then the world is not just a heart, as we said. It's the heart related to electricity and power and food. So it's this interconnectedness. Well, I consider that an intelligence. The intelligence is the capacity to make connections with things we have never connected before. And that leads us to innovation. Because if you, sing, if you see things no one saw before, you're an innovator, you're an inventor, you're a discoverer. And I want kids when they discover to do it. So these are, this is really the purpose of the fable, is to develop five intelligences, the sciences, the emotions, the arts, the connections, and the doing. And, well, I started delivering these fables as a pedagogy, as a way of teaching in Brazil. And the Chinese government had its consul at the inauguration of this event, and then the Chinese government said, why don't you want to do that in China? And so I said, sure, why don't we do that? I mean, if I can teach kids to be entrepreneurs, you know, for the common good, um, let's go for it. And so the Chinese government did a three-year test, and it turned out to be much better than they expected. Then they said, let's do it in 5,000 schools. And then after three years, the Chinese academy came back and said, we want to do it in every single school of China. And the result is today, I am already with 324 fables in 795,000 schools. And, and, and every school has a little Gunter Pauli library um, where the books are, are, are ready to be read. And, and you know what is beautiful about it is in the end of the day, the greatest contribution to sustainability. You know, honestly, David, the greatest contribution to sustainability is to inspire kids to be positive and do what you and I have not been able to do. Uh, that's why I celebrate Ecoflix. That's why I celebrate exposing the children, not imposing them the bad news, but exposing them to the incredible opportunities that are all around us. We just have to see them. It's so true. I remember the first time we were talking about this, you were talking about the how the apple got up in the tree. 
<laughs> That's true. You know, isn't it amazing that uh, you ask anyone the question, how does the apple come down from the tree? And everyone knows, oh, the law of gravity. We all, we all feel so intelligent. But then when I asked them, could you please give me the seven laws of physics that permit an apple to get up in the tree against the law of gravity? And I tell you, kids love that question. And, you know, the parents go on to Google. Google doesn't know. <laughs> Isn't that fantastic? There's no Wikipedia explaining us how it works. Now, this is where we get kids excited, when they know the parents have no clue. Although, let's be honest, David, it's quite obvious the apple, before it comes down, must go up. And, and, and if we as parents cannot explain how did the apple get up, who are we? How could we talk about sustainability? It's not possible. See, this is the kind of thing that makes my brain itch every time we talk. It's so great. <laughs> There's we could we could stop and start a two-hour conversation about the fables, but I want to keep going because as amazing as they are, and I urge everybody to get them, I want to talk about your arc, your evolution. And I think a very important place is Ecover, because as I understand your life it was a, a revelation of sorts for you so can you talk about what ecover is was and how it changed the direction of your life and your thinking you see i was and have been associated for more than 40 years with the club of rome this group of 100 intellectuals who jointly think about the future you know, a very important thing to do. Let's project ourselves in the future. So as a member of the Club of Rome, I was, of course, exposed to all the bad news. I mean, all the bad news kept on coming and kept on coming. And I came to the point in the, in the mid-80s where I was saying, I mean, more bad news? I've had enough bad news. And if the good news isn't coming, let me create the good news. So first of all, I became the publisher of books because I wanted the good news to get out. And, and I tell you, David, I mean, this desktop publishing system of Apple just wiped me out. I was fortunate enough uh, to know Steve Wozniak, and I was fortunate enough to make this deal with Apple that I would be promoting desktop publishing. And, and it was a success because we were able to do instant books. You know, it's a little bit like instant coffee. It's not the real espresso, but, you know, if you're in need of a caffeine shot, an instant one will do it as well. So the instant books. Then I was reading all those books and got all this great input. And I was saying that, I mean, we're now back in 1989. And I was saying that, how could we just be content by reducing pollution? It's not possible. Zero is the target. I mean, I said it in 89, first article of mine published that zero emissions is not the target anymore. It has to be the starting point. And of course, the immediate reaction was, business will never be able to compete. And I said, who said so? And so I was determined after in 89, setting the stage for this zero emissions target uh, as a business model on which we could thrive and innovate, well, then an opportunity came by to actually buy a company that was on the brink of bankruptcy and it was making detergents, biodegradable detergents. So I looked at the product and said, you can't have a biodegradable product if you're not in a biodegradable factory. I mean, look at how we're building factories. They're a sham, they're a disaster. They're never insulated uh, for energy wastes. Uh, no one is treating their own waste. They're just chipped off to some central water treatment plant. And, and I said, let me build. As the first act of the CEO and the chairman of this new company, let me create the zero emissions factory. And we did. The plants were there, a lot of ideas were floating around, but you know, it's always the same. Who does it? I mean, people talk, but who does? And so um, we decided to get going. And in actually exactly 40 years ago, in sorry, exactly 30 years ago, in September 1992, we inaugurated the first zero emissions factory in history. In modern history, because, you know, before everything was zero emissions, I mean, it's only recently we started to be so polluting. So the beauty was 
David, that I was not able, not only able to say, this is the standard, and I was able to say, and I'm an entrepreneur, and I'm applying that standard, and I'm taking market share from Procter & Gamble. I'm taking market share from Unilever. I'm taking market share from Henkel. You know, in the Netherlands, in Amsterdam, the backyard of Unilever, I was taking 10% of the market, 10. You know, these poor guys, they had no clue what was happening to them because I came off the radar and I was not doing advertising and my position was very simple. My advertising, it's my factory. Come and have a look at it. And we had buses arriving at the factory. We had CNN primetime news. You remember Peter Jennings? Oh, yeah. Well, Peter Jennings and ABC News made a special on it. I mean, you can imagine the impact it had. Everyone wanted to have that product. So I was, this product, thanks to a great team, became an incredible success. Until today is one of the better known global green brands. Actually, the color looks like Ecoflix, you know, it's uh, eco in green like yours and Flix for us is that is green in French. So, um, you know, David, it was a success. And I was catapulted to the forefront as a guru on how to do this. But I had to come to terms with reality. And that is really the life experience. I had to come to terms with reality because I became one of the largest buyers of palm oil from Indonesia. So I was invited by Indonesian government, visited uh, Kalimantan, and there I saw firsthand the huge destruction that I was promoting. I didn't know, but the reality was it is happening before my eyes. So I realized that I was cleaning up the rivers in Europe. I was eliminating the pollution from the air, but I was destroying the rainforest in Indonesia. So there was no way I was going to continue doing business as if nothing was happening. And I had my friends, even friends in Greenpeace, telling me, Gunter, you're a perfectionist. You shouldn't be making it so hard on yourself just reduce your impact and over time you'll be fine and i said how can i explain to my children that because i was making money i should now just pollute less that means destroy less rainforest i mean if if there's a little bit of ethics left in business then there's no way you're going to tolerate it so i i had to get out I took six months, David, six months. Uh, I separated from my wife. I, I went to live in a monastery. I needed to think through. I, I talked to deep friends like Fritjof Capra. I came to Berkeley. I, I talked to my friends at SVN, Social Venture Network. I talked to, uh, to a, a lot of people who shared my concerns, uh, but everyone was at a loss. How can you be so perfect? And, and I took a step back. And after learning to know my friend Janine Benius, who coined the term biomimicry, bi um, I said, but the great master is all around us. It's nature. So while I was formulating uh, my, my, my renaissance, uh, my rebirth, um, I got this invitation from the United Nations. They had agreed to give the COP3 meeting to Japan. And that is the COP meeting where the Kyoto Protocol was going to be agreed. So I was at COP1, COP2, and COP3. But I was given the responsibility to prepare with a think tank the business models that would secure a dramatic reduction of carbon emissions and all at the same time be competitive. And they said, if we would, would have invited an academic, a pure academic, we would have had a thousand applications. But we were looking for someone who is committed in the business community to do this. And so there was only one candidate and they said, the Japanese government and the United Nations has agreed. So my, my chance to correct my errors and to create a completely new platform for business where you don't expect anymore from yourself to tolerate a little bit of bad, you know, some side effects you don't control. No, it was either going to be all inclusive or nothing. And, and that opportunity for the first time in my life 
to have, in the end, more than 3,000 scientists contributing to solid science and then with solid business strategy put forward the business of the future. Of course, I don't, uh, I don't have to, to insist on that with you, David, because you know the end of the story is when I was in Kyoto, no one came to my presentations. No one. I mean, I had four people in the room, including myself, and the other poor three were definitely in the wrong room because everything was about cap and trade. Let's limit the amount of emissions and let's trade the excesses at a cost and the market will determine. And I said, no, 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 no. If you don't change the business model, you're going to reconfirm that doing less bad is by all of you considered good. That's exactly the trap I went into. So we must all do more good. And so I was uh, considered irrelevant at the meeting after three years of work. So that was my second crash in three years' time. The first was the Ecovere one and the second one. And, and then starts, for... You know, but this is like saying a person on a trampoline is crashing when they bounce off the mat. You're, you weren't crashing. You were evolving. And it's a remarkable, just it tells so much about who you are that you won't accept compromise where it's not necessary. Sure, there have been many times in history where we didn't have the knowledge to know we could do better or how to do better. But you were stuck with your own wisdom because you knew you could do better. And so you insisted on it. Not many people do that. That's one of the reasons why you're so remarkable. But I think the story, your evolution, your arc continues in so many directions. It's almost impossible to capture you in any one discussion. But I want to try to bounce around. So if I may, I want to change topic slightly. Unless you're in the middle of a hot topic, you want to keep going. I, okay. You're my master, David. Oh, no, that's host. not true. Please, but that's I true. Just, I want people to see sort of all the rays of the sun that are coming out of you. You, you, you ran into a, a problem in Africa. Somebody wanted to grow tomatoes, and they didn't have enough water. Now, most people would say, gee, maybe you should grow something else. That isn't how you think. Tell everybody what your idea was and how it solved that problem. Well, David, uh, let, let's be clear. Um, if I can articulate many of these projects is because I have had so many masters and grandmasters who took the time to explain to me uh, a simple MBA from a business school who doesn't understand science and technology and certainly has no clue about engineering. But, you know, that is where the fables comes in. I'm like a little child. I mean, uh, I'm asking them, could you please explain me how it works? And, and, and I had these scientists an Englishman uh, who, who came to me and said, well, you know, it's amazing that people always want to pump water out of the ground, whereas there is so much water in the air. I said, yeah, that's right. He said, well, actually, there's more fresh water in the air than there is in rivers and lakes, but, you know, we somehow don't get it out of the air. And I said, so how do we get it out of the air? So he bounces it back to me and said, how does nature do it? I mean, have you been in the desert? Sure, I've been in the desert. In the desert in the morning, is it warm or cold? No, it's, I mean, hell, it's very cold. Okay, and have you slept one night in the desert? I said, yes, I did. And what happens to you? Well, I said, God damn it, I was wet. Mm. I mean, the dew was all over me. He said, okay, don't you get it? I said, what do you mean? And, and so by having these very hands-on discussions, we came to a very simple conclusion that we need a source of cold water to make, in the end of the day, water flow. Where? Where we need it. We don't need it in big tanks and big rivers and big canals. We need it on the tomatoes. So the solution that uh, was offered was very basic. You are close to the ocean. In Africa, just about all countries have water around them. You are close to the ocean. You go 20, 30 meters deep the water temperature drops to probably 10, 12 degrees Celsius. You pump that water through small pipes through the ground, and what do you get? Condensation. You're a dew machine. And so that applied to tomatoes went from 
needing 600 liters of water for one kilogram of tomatoes to producing three liters of fresh drinking water per kilo of tomatoes. Now, you know, David, there's something with me. When I hear that, I can't sit still. I mean, hey, hey guys, I mean, this is not the moment to do like this. This is the moment to say, come on, you guys, let's get going. And so fortunately, it immediately picked on with a few people. So today in Australia, there is a wonderful commercially very successful project called Sundrop Farms. And Sundrop Farms is taking cold seawater, pumps it through the ground, puts the seawater back into the sea and has a condensation of uh, dew all the time. It's the biggest organic farm in the world of tomatoes. It's now supplying nearly 5% of the Australian market. And I, think, I think you're going over most people's heads. You certainly go over mine all the time. The reason that the tomatoes are able to enjoy the condensation is because you came up with the idea of when you get to the tomatoes, you perforate the top of the pipe. So for the first time, the condensation can escape the pipe. The tomatoes get water. The salt remains in the flow that goes back to the ocean. And you have this continuing recirculating condensation pump, which I've never heard of before. And I'm sure you hadn't either. You invented it. And that's the kind of out-of-the-box stuff I'm talking about. David, I, I did not invent. I discovered Well, you didn't invent it. condensation, I, I... but you applied it. <laughs> Um, it is it is discovery you think you see i have come to the conclusion that so many of the things we have around us have been around us for so long but we never saw it it's a discovery and and condensation of course brings water everywhere where we need it even when there is no water because it gets it out of the air now the key to success is to turn it into a viable business model and this is where i very often miss with so many of the great intention and such great motivation of people who want to change the world. But we got to be very concrete and realistic. If it doesn't turn into a business model that can outcompete what is there, you're not going to succeed. Well, you're talking about the difference between philanthropy and impact investing. Impact Even beyond impact investing, you know, David, I... I think the word impact investing is just about as misused as the word green economy uh, or sustainability. We need legacy investors. You know, when you get something new, you have to have people who are going to hang in there for the long haul. Because if you can grow tomatoes and produce paper, what is the real economic benefit? Let me just ask you very straight off the cuff. If you have a piece of land and nothing grows and there is no water, what, how much are you willing to pay for an acre? Depends on what you can do with the land. Exactly. So if I'm now saying the same land that everyone thinks has no water and nothing grows is a piece of land that has water and it grows competitively tomatoes, what's the value of the land? The okay. value of land goes up. So I'm telling my investor friends, this is not a tomato project. This is a straightforward real estate project. This is just taking a piece of land and giving it value with right, a but, cash flow. Yes, but this is why I say, and maybe we're just haggling over definitions, but to me, philanthropy is just giving for the sake of giving. Impact investing is where you want to do good, but you want it to have a financial impact so that it can continue to give back and continue to do good. And so philanthropy is closer to giving people a leg up or a start, but it doesn't last. Impact investing is forever and it, it sustains itself. And so what you're talking about is, you know, giving people a, a profession is different than giving them uh, something to eat. They, they've got a long-term opportunity. David, and it's more than just being able to invest and have returns. You have to gain market share. You know, Eventually. we are not in the business of competing. I'm always telling my fellow entrepreneurs, we're in the business of out-competing. Mm -hmm. I mean, competing, you're suffering. Out-competing, you make the others suffer because the transition is urgent, David. We but, can't waste time. 
Right, but you're talking about two different things, I think. If you're in a business and all you're trying to do is make a living, then it's sufficient to compete. If you're trying to change the world and eliminate so many of the things that really are destroying our planet and our biodiversity, then you need to outcompete so that you can eliminate the things that are doing bad and harm uh, on a daily basis. And so I see that distinction in that context. But if you're just going to work every day uh, and you just want to make a living to support your family and that's all your goal is, then competing is sufficient. But if you want to make a difference in the world, and I can't imagine you living without having that as your target, because that is who you are, then I'm sure out competing is the is the floor for you, certainly not the ceiling. But let me go on to another one. Rock paper. Yes. Nobody knows what that is until you told them what it is. Can you tell us about your discovery there? Well, you see, if we look at the challenges the world is facing, the earth is facing, societies and communities are facing, then water pops up as one of the key issues. And you, you already heard it with tomatoes. It's a water issue that somehow we translate into a real estate opportunity. You know, it's investing in land and investing in food production, but by eliminating the water as a problem and securing it the water becomes part of the solution. And the same happened with, with paper. I mean, uh, hey, um, people were saying we're not going to use paper anymore. Yes, that was until we started ordering things from home and everything gets wrapped up in a cardboard box. Um, you know, we have an explosion of the consumption of paper and very few people realize that um, many of these mills in Asia and Latin America will be using six thousand liters of water for one ton of paper i mean this is this is amazing so the question is am i gonna uh, have a shower am i gonna be able to do agriculture or am i gonna have paper because many communities just don't have the water so again in the framework of uh, uh, our united nations university initiative called zero emissions and in the framework of this uh, Japanese backed up think tank, there was a guy who came to see me and he showed me a piece of paper and he said, Gunter, this is made without water. And I said, come on, without water. He said, yeah, yeah, yeah we can. So he explained it to me. He said, uh, you know, there's a big problem with mines. I said, we're talking about water. And I said, listen, patient, listen to me. And so he explained that mines have a lot of dust in the air. I mean, it's one of the big problems of asthma, respiratory diseases, because when you're crushing rocks, you're releasing a lot of dust into the air. And he said, we catch that dust and we, we blend it with a polymer. I said, oh, you're meaning plastics? He said, yes, but this is the good use of plastics because we can use a high density polyethylene. We warm it up and we just saturate it with the dust. And in the end, you will have 80% dust and 20% polymer. And he said, we can recycle it forever. Recycle it forever, said a thousand times. He said, yes, we've done a thousand times. That means that in 2000 years, I could still read the book that was printed on this. I said, absolutely, you can. I said, I know a guy who was born 2000 years ago would have been very interested to see his books published like that. And so he said, yes, but we do not even need water to make it and we don't need water to recycle it. So I said, show me, you know, at that point in time, you have to. And he said, well, are you ready to come to Taiwan? I said, I have no problem to come to Taiwan. I took a plane, was in Tokyo, came to Taiwan, saw the facility and I was impressed. But I said, look, if you can make sheets of paper, that's great. But the world market demand is 500 million tons. Do you have machines that can do 500 million tons? And he said, no, not at the moment. And I said, well, then that's going to be our focus. Uh, David, this relates back to the legacy investor. It took us 17 years to have the machinery that can crunch out hundreds of thousands of tons and, and without water. Now, if you look at, I'm a business person in heart and soul. I need to see the competitiveness. Now, when I realize that it's without water, I'm saying bravo. But when I realize it's a third of the costs 
a third of the cost, the capex, the capital expenditure is half of the cost, then I know this is a winner. And then I don't mind if it's going to take 17 years to get the machines in order. Today, we get five factories up and running. We have passed a million tons a year production capacity. And now China has decided to go to a 20, 40, 50 new factories because China has no water. China cannot afford to be the biggest consumer of paper in the world, surpassing 120 million tons and therefore using trillions of liters of water. It's just not sustainable. So I'm glad that we see these kind of fundamental shifts. So instead of saying, how can I reduce the amount of water and recycle some of the water? The, the answer is very blunt. How can we make paper without water? And now it's done. And now we have to go big time, volume, volume, volume. See, I don't, I don't buy that you're just a businessman because you don't limit yourself to things that make money. I, how do you travel through airports? Well, using planes. No, no, that's between airports. <laughs> how do you travel in the airport? Oh, I travel on my little, uh, my little bike, uh, my little uh, trottinette in French, uh, uh, my little scooter. Explain. Uh, Self-powered scooter. So my suitcase has a little, uh, a little system on it with four wheels and a steering system. So I've limited my luggage wherever I go, how long have I go to only eight and a half kilos. And with that, I scooter through the airports. Yes, that's true. And you fly, you, it's like you have one foot on this scooter with your luggage there and you're pushing with the other leg and you're going by people at light speed, mostly like your conversations, you go by us at light speed, but it's the, an example. This isn't about money, it wasn't business. You see things out of the box. And this is what I'm just hopefully starting to expose is this very unique quality that you have. Um, you have a current passion that's focusing on sustainable energy solutions. Talk a little bit about uh, SS Parima. David, when, when you have an issue with uh, Russia and Ukraine, I mean, it's impossible you don't put high speed behind solutions for the energy crisis. And, and so we know that uh, fossil fuels are on the exit, and I'm not in favor of uh, nuclear for a very simple reason that the waste is waste, and it's never been resolved, and we've been promised a solution, and any nuclear station needs government guarantees, that means the people pay. So therefore, I've been saying, where is the most abundant source of energy? And again, it's like, what we had with the water, it's in the air. We have enormous amounts of energy right above us, but since we've decided to have these poles with a rotary, we fixed the point where the wind must blow. And of course, science has taught us to find the best spot, but there's not one windmill around the world that crunches power more than 50% of the day. It doesn't work. On average, it's less than 50%. So I said, but, why don't we have something that moves? And people said, oh, from an engineering point, that is too difficult. And I questioned that because I know the Polynesian cultures were doing that already 8,000 years ago. I mean, the kite, which anyone who knows kite surfing, I mean, that little kite we are using as kite surfers pulls us all the way out of the water at thundering speeds. And so, a team in Germany, which we have been supporting for so many years, uh, turned high elevation wind, that means wind between 200 and 800 meters, as the permanent source. And the only thing you have to do is what you and I have learned as a kid with a kite, just float it. And people say, oh, but when there is no wind, well, what do you do as a child when there is no wind? You pull a few times, and then you create your own wind and your kite will go up. Exactly the same is being done. So I became very, very motivated about the capacity to use a kite and generate power because the kite will always go where the best wind is. 
And when it goes where the best wind is, you can improve that with a bit of artificial intelligence. But then the power is being generated thanks to a second invention, David, that is just marvelously around all of us since thousands of years, and it's called the yo-yo. You, you know the yo-yo. Who has not played with the yo-yo? And what was the yo-yo? The yo-yo was a teaching instrument for the Greeks to teach the young to release that bow, that arrow at exactly the right moment. Because if you miss it with a tenth of a second, then you missed your target. And that means you're dead. And so the whole thing for the Greeks was, can we teach those kids to know exactly when to do this? And, and to do this means now to pull the kite back down. And by the up and down of this kite, that was developed by the Polynesians 8,000 years ago. And this clicking mode that was developed by the Greeks 2,500 years ago, were able to make power permanently. That means wind becomes baseload power. And, and, and it, is, it works so well. Now, I put it on a boat. And you know, when you put it on a boat, you're really ruggedizing it. You're making it very complex because on a boat, this is difficult because the boat moves their waves now we could make it work on a boat if you can make that work on a boat well then you can make it work just about anywhere anywhere where there's wind now wind is everywhere and so i am being very committed to have this wind power that is 24 hours a day and and again you don't have to be a great economist to figure out that if i have to invest in a tower that is giving me 50% of power, and I can do it with a kite and that gives me 100% of power. Now, which investment would you prefer? Now, the kite is connected to a little cord, a strong cord, but a cord, whereas this is in a is, is, is a, a, a tower of concrete and cement, 2,500 tons total versus 100 tons total. So we're cutting the material use. We're doing 100% more, double the amount of energy. And that's the kind of solutions that I want to see in practice. So we are moving on these. We got the first permits in Germany. We have a permit in Mauritius. We're going to do it in the Maldives. And we're going to take one diesel generator after the other out of every island that we can see. And this is again where the investment comes in. Do you simply want to substitute a diesel generator with a kite or are you offering them the build, operate and service to produce drinking water and power and help them clean up their environment? You know, David, we're not anymore in the core business of power. We're really in the core business of sustainability and making a difference in the world. And if that can be the core business by producing too much power. Now, you heard me, David. The kite, when you put two of these kites together, they're going in harmony, but then you are producing too much power. Oh, what a nice problem to have. Now we can turn the too much power into hydrogen. And, and when I am sharing that on the boat, we've done this, we're making hydrogen from seawater. And if you make hydrogen from seawater, and you consume it on the boat, then I have hydrogen at one third of the cost of hydrogen that is sold today on the market. Now, why aren't people using hydrogen? Because it's too expensive. It's too expensive to compress it, to transport it, and all the safety and security around it. But if you're able to produce hydrogen from seawater with your excess power from your windmills, which are your kites that operate with a yo-yo, and then you look at the, the, the excess power and you turn it into hydrogen. And when you're using the hydrogen, you're having your drinking water. Uh, you know, David, you tell this story to a child and they say, why do you need a permit? I mean, why, why, why do you need a permit? What's the problem with the birds? And he said, there's no problem with the birds because there's a little eye on the box, on the robot hanging in underneath. And when a bird is coming by, the kite just goes out of the way. Simple. This is what technology can do today. You know, still a child does not understand why it took us three years in Germany to have a first permit, why it took us one year in Mauritius to have a permit. And, and you know, 
we believe that when within a few years, the world will celebrate kites as the invention of the Polynesians, and they will celebrate the Greeks as the inventors of the yo-yo. And, and we have to bring this, David, into the language of a child. Anything that everyone understands, but roll it out. Now, what's my problem? I can't get manufacturing to crank up. Everyone tells me there are problems with supply chain. And I'm saying, what problem with supply chain? If you have a problem with supply chain, we need decision makers who get it out of the way. And so we are at this moment uh, moving fast track on getting the first 1,000 units manufactured. And, and, and you, know, you need to have the culture of industrialization. You know, Americans and Europeans, we've had it too easy. We love to go to the opera. We enjoy listening to great music. We, we are delighted when we can go to a concert of Coldplay or the Rolling Stones. And, and for the rest, we're just managing our fortunes, you know, because even when many people don't have the resources, we don't seem to have the drive to produce, industrialize, bring volume. And, and that is the big challenge I see today. How can we go from these great ideas to really industrialization, reindustrialization of the economy that will only be sustainable? Well, I totally get it. And I'm, uh, you stopped a little short of finishing SS Parima because it doesn't run just on kite power. And you're converting the hydrogen also with solar power. So can you walk Correct. through that bigger picture? Well, MS Parima is, is a wonderful initiative of a Swiss pioneer, Raphael Donjon, who, who wanted to go around the world with a solar boat. And he did, 2010, 2012. He was the first one in history to go around the world with solar only. Then another, another innovator came in and started saying, we got to add that at the kite because it took two years. That's a bit too slow. We need to go a bit faster. And so with the kite that can pull up to nine knots by just having the kite and the additional power to be converted from solar and from the kite into the hydrogen gives us this incredible platform of being able to go around the world now already four times equivalent 95,000 nautical miles and you know uh, David as we come to a close for two reasons one time and two my battery I see I only have six percent battery left on this system but when when we are looking at this together you and I realize that what we need is a new generation of talent you know, talent is people who know the technologies, but with a lot of enthusiasm. And, you know, I don't have, you You're know, not short on either of those, <laughs> but we need, we have quite a few people with great talent, but we need a generation, David, of young people with talent. I agree. But I want, before we finish, we, we haven't even really gotten to the meat of your, your story, but You've been called the Steve Jobs of sustainable development. Hopefully people are starting to get a feeling for why that is. And your latest book, The Blue Economy, 10 years, 100 innovations, 10 million jobs, quite a title. And if I understand it correctly, at its core, your blue economy vision is to use readily available resources to respond to imminent local needs. And this has led you to focus on the abundant resources of the world's oceans. And of course, they're hopelessly underprotected. And as you're pointing out, they're underused in important and sustainable ways. If, with the remaining time you have left, please share with us your thinking in that regard. David, uh, you know, when we, we prepared for this talk, we said we may run out of time. And, and, and now I have to confess to you, we run out of time and run out of battery. But uh, <laughs> the most important is exactly as you summarized it. I can't summarize it better than you did. We use what we have. I mean, there is wind above us at 200 meters. Use that wind. Don't look for anything else. Um, we have dust in the air. 
uh, and we have water in the air. Let's use it and let's just find the technology to use it. So first of all, use what you got. Second, use it to respond to basic needs. I mean, where is this idea that we have to produce something to export it and then we remain in poverty and some people get some money? That's not the way to go. So we need to respond to basic needs first. We need to eradicate poverty and we need to regenerate that ecosystem on which we depend. I mean, biodiversity cannot be protected. We've tried that for 50, 60 years. It's a disaster. We need to regenerate biodiversity. And so one of the big new projects that we have, uh, we're initiating in Nicaragua is to do a regeneration of, of the forests in Nicaragua, which have been widely destroyed with a drive to produce more food. And we're going to do that not by planting seeds ourselves, but we're going to do that by reintroducing the tapir. The tapir is the largest mammal of uh, the Americas and of Latin America. And the tapir will be eating 300 different fruits and its digestive system is incapable of digesting seeds. And therefore, some scientists who say the tapir has a very bad digestive system. No, 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 no. The tapir has the greatest digestive system for regenerating forests. So if we want forests again, we need to reintroduce the tapirs. And, you know, David, what blue economy is about is thinking in this connected way. I mean, let's reintroduce the tapirs and regenerate the forest. And inside the forest, let's do coffee and cacao so that we can increase the revenues. And let's make certain we use 100% of the coffee and the cacao. That means we're not just doing coffee and cacao. We're also growing mushrooms on the waste of the coffee and the cacao so that we can double the revenues with what we have. And, and I think globalization has done a lot for us, has opened our eyes to so many opportunities. But globalization has blinded us. And so we don't see anymore what is right around us. And, and that wake up is needed now because our supply chains are not functioning very well. So better have a local resource and our needs are up. I mean, we have more people under the poverty line, David, than we had two years ago, more. So whatever we're doing is not working very well. So I'm not criticizing what we have done. I'm only saying that we've got to do much better. And that's why, you know, work like you're doing uh, by making this known through Ecoflix, work that we're doing to secure that young people have the action on the ground and the traction in the business in order to move forward. Uh, we need many more of us. And, and you know, we were talking before, you know, I'm getting a little bit gray. My beard is getting too gray and your hair is already beautifully white. Um, we need people who have some more color in their hair. And, uh, and, and that is our appeal to the young. Well, as much as we need to get to the young, we need more people like you with gray hair and the wisdom to apply what you've learned. And it's, it's impossible to capture you in an hour, but um, maybe we'll have a chance to do it again. And I really appreciate your taking the time today. Thanks a lot, David. And, and closing off with only 1% of my computer seems to be perfect timing and excellent use of the resources that we have available. Thank you, David. I'm Thank available you. for you anytime. Thank you. Bye-bye now. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. Please share it with your family and friends who want to join with us to truly make a difference. Remember, Think big, start small, but act now. Thank you.